about the same kind of narratives to help us imagine the right to be safe because someone isn't pointing a gun at us, that's a harder thing to kind of get your cultural imagination around. And it certainly wasn't my intention when I went into that hearing to become a poster boy for gun control. Well, this also isn't, you know, an argument or an organization that's going to say because we're from urban areas in America that we don't deserve to have our basic rights met. The counter argument to the Second Amendment absolutist argument is what is my right to live in safety? I mean, we're not we're not a group of frontiersmen anymore, are we? Welcome back to Breached, a podcast on the American social contract. I'm Helena Swanson-Eystrom. And I'm Jyoti Jasrasaria. This is the third episode of a 10-part series. If you're just joining us, we recommend going back and listening to our trailer, Introducing Breached, for a brief primer on our concept. Each episode of Breached will explore a different area that is commonly considered to be part of a social contract. We started by exploring the idea of community, who gets to be in and who is left out, and then the idea of dissent. Who is given a voice to define and shape our shared rights and obligations? Today, we're talking about safety. The Constitution doesn't include an explicit right to safety. And yet, the idea of safety as an individual right and a collective responsibility can be seen in early American documents. The Declaration of Independence states that people have the right to form a government that protects both their safety and happiness. A decade later, in a letter that accompanied the newly drafted U.S. Constitution, George Washington highlighted the tension between supporting individual independence and ensuring what he calls the safety of all. He wrote, quote, individuals entering into society must give up a share of liberty to preserve the rest. He continues, quote, it is at all times difficult to draw with precision the line between those rights which must be surrendered and those which may be preserved. This struck us as a particularly illuminating way to think about our right to safety which we will discuss today through the lens of our country's current debate around guns. Who can protect themselves with guns? Who can protect themselves from guns? And whose safety is prioritized when we're drawing that line? We recognize that the debate around guns is a sensitive topic, and one that evokes strong reactions on an increasingly regular basis, as gun violence is an everyday reality for people across the country. Today is the one-month anniversary of one of the deadliest school massacres in U.S. history the Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in Parkland, Florida. 17 people lost their lives, many were injured, and some of the survivors have bravely taken it upon themselves to demand the country's attention on this issue. The conversations that we're sharing with you today occurred in the weeks before the Parkland school shooting. We wanted to share that information with you all upfront, knowing that recent events will be on many of our listeners' minds. Our goal in today's episode is not to provide our personal opinions on the gun reform debate. Rather, we want to talk about some perspectives and tensions that we feel are important to consider as we move forward in thinking about the mutual rights and responsibilities we share when it comes to safety. To quote one of our iTunes reviewers, our goal is to discuss issues of contemporary importance in a way that looks beyond the day-to-day headlines. We hope this episode meets that aspiration. The concept of safety is a lot broader than guns. And to get a sense of how Americans have traditionally balanced issues of safety, we reached out to Arwen Mohan, a professor at the University of Delaware and a scholar in a field known as history of technology. 
Arwen wrote a book in 2012 called Risk, Negotiating Safety in American Society, in which she explains how we as Americans generally think about risk. There are certain technologies that people have used to, in the narrative I tell and through history, to, to think about risk and how to manage it. And the typical pattern, which is true for both railroads and for automobiles, is that um, when the technologies are first introduced, people aren't really sure how to manage the risk trade-offs. And, um, and they're not also sure who should be responsible and um, what's worth it in terms of risk-taking. And that that gradually gets sorted out so that there's a kind of a consensus about it. So I think with automobiles, we more or less as a society have uh, pretty much a common understanding about what constitutes an acceptable level of risk and how to manage that risk. Arwen points out that while this is a common pattern for how we have balanced risk and safety when it comes to a wide variety of issues, including cars, trains, fires, animals, and workplaces, Americans have not adopted a similar approach when it comes to guns. Guns haven't turned out to be that way, and I think that's for a couple of reasons. One is because they're a different kind of technology in the sense that they have what historians of technology call a lot of interpretive flexibility. So um, they could be a technology of safety and self-defense. It can be uh, an entertainment technology. They can be uh, unacceptably dangerous technology. And and we have, as a society, never really reached any uh, consensus about which of those meanings is the most important. And nor have we reached a consensus about who gets to decide. And with automobiles and railroads, that ultimately the the state has um, we've conceded the um, the decision making about you know what it's good for to the state, but that that's continued to be contested with guns. In addition to the interpretive flexibility of guns, that they're seen as both a tool to maintain safety and the very thing that implicates our safety in the first place, Arwen mentions that another difference is a particular psychology we have around guns. The way that people feel when they're holding a gun or when they imagine defending themselves with a gun is a, is a really great example of a particular dimension of risk perception that psychologists talk about, which is that people feel most in control of dangerous situations when they feel like they have agency in controlling that situation. We usually picture the narrative of how someone keeps themselves safe from the point of view of a person with a gun. From movies and television shows, we imagine someone buying a gun to control the safety of their home, their family, and themselves. On the flip side, though, it's harder to imagine a powerful movie about someone trying to keep themselves safe by avoiding guns altogether. That person's story is perhaps never told. We don't have the same kind of narratives to help us imagine the right to be safe because someone isn't pointing a gun at us. 
that's a harder thing to kind of get your cultural imagination around. The idea that our approach to balancing interests of safety is somehow different in the context of guns seemed to be put on display in November of 2017, during a confirmation hearing for a top position in the Department of Defense. Two months earlier, President Trump had nominated Dr. Dean Winslow to serve as Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs. Dean is a professor of medicine at Stanford University and a retired Air Force colonel who was deployed four times to Iraq and twice to Afghanistan as a flight surgeon. So uh, when uh, Jim asked me to consider serving as his Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs, I really jumped at the chance. I think many of you know that uh, Jim Mattis has a reputation as being probably the finest combat leader of, of at least my generation and someone who's widely res respected uh, from really all branches of the military. This was a, a wonderful opportunity to be able to continue to serve my country. On November 5th, a former member of the military who was armed with a semi-automatic rifle killed 26 people who were attending a Sunday morning church service in Sutherland Springs, Texas. The shooter had a criminal record that should have disqualified him from buying his gun, but the records had not been properly filed. My hearing uh, was eventually scheduled for November 7th, and uh, it uh, turned out that that was less than two days after one of the more recent uh, uh, horrific mass shootings that occurred in Sutherland Springs, Texas. So I really would like to preface my remarks that I certainly going into that hearing, uh, number one, had no idea that, uh, you know, I was going to be asked about this mass shooting, which really has nothing to do with uh, the U.S. military health system. And it certainly wasn't my intention when I went into that hearing to become a poster boy for gun control. At his hearing in front of the Senate Armed Services Committee, Dean was asked by Senator Gene Shaheen to share his thoughts about the mass shooting and the military's failure to properly share records. Uh, my response uh, was, uh, well, first of all, that that's a JAG or a, a lawyer issue, not really a medical issue. Uh, but she uh, uh, kind of continued to press the point uh, and asked me, well, what I would do to make sure that things like this didn't happen again. And I just again responded that um, if it were in my area of authority, I would certainly recommend something like an inspector general's inspection to, uh, or investigation rather, to, to look at systems issues for why that this happened and, and uh, what uh, sorts of things could be done to prevent an instance like this happening in the future. If I had stopped there, it would have been fine. And then I started talking about systems failures. And uh, again, as a former Air Force flight surgeon who was involved in looking at uh, uh, aircraft mishaps, you know, I, I, I shared that, well, when a terrible event happens, you have to look at the sort of systems failures and why usually uh, a number of things have to go wrong before a tragedy uh, happens. And then uh, I, I really wasn't allowed the chance to elaborate, but I did mention that uh, most of the rest of the world, you know, considers it, that it's insane that uh, we have essentially unrestricted access to these terrible military assault weapons uh, by civilians in the United States. And again, I think as soon as it came out of my mouth, I realized I probably uh, shot myself in the foot, so to speak. But uh, again, I stand by what I said. I think it really is um, uh, very unfortunate that we uh, you know, have so little regulation over uh, uh, these very lethal weapons in the United States as opposed to the rest of the world. 
Soon after that hearing, the Senate Armed Services Committee placed Dean's nomination on indefinite hold, and he ultimately withdrew himself from consideration. The position has yet to be permanently filled. It wasn't until 2008, only 10 years ago, that the Supreme Court held, in a case called District of Columbia v. Heller, that the Second Amendment gives individuals the right to own a gun. However, long before that, Americans have used both state and federal laws to define access to guns. In some instances, those laws were largely driven by race. In many Southern states, Black codes that were passed after the Civil War included provisions that made it illegal for Black Americans to own a gun. And a hundred years later, the fact that members of the Black Panther Party began to conduct armed patrols served as the impetus for then-California Governor Ronald Reagan to sign a bill that made it illegal to carry guns in public. One could argue that this distinction continues to underlie the rhetoric often invoked about who has a right to safety through individual gun ownership. Whether it's a distinction between so-called criminals and honest citizens, or the argument that urban and rural settings present different contexts for guns. We wanted to talk to someone who was working to challenge these perceptions and came across Black Guns Matter, an organization founded by Maj Touré to educate Black men and women living in urban communities about the Second Amendment. We spoke to Maj about why he first started the organization in 2015. We, we started the organization because, you know, as an artist beforehand, as a hip-hop artist, independent, I would travel around selling my own music. Um, what I noticed, I, I got a lot of friendships from doing that, and most of my friends would catch the same case in different cities. So it would be like a possession of a firearm charge, not because they were bad guys, just because in some cities they didn't even know that they had to spend a few bucks and fill out some paperwork to have a license to carry. You know, there's, there's guys, 24-, 25-year-old guys that, you know, work at a bank that have never caught a charge in their life. You know, and then they, they, they purchase a firearm not knowing that you have to, you know, have the license in order to carry it. And, you know, now, now their life has changed forever. So and seeing that this is a consistent theme, you know, when there's something that's that consistent, it's, it's, it's not an accident. It's a highly organized phenomenon. So we were like, okay, we know an answer here. So let's, you know, we did the license to carry drive. That went over crazy. So many people asked, could we come to their town? We was like, yo, why don't we pick a few cities? Then we picked 13 cities and we started our GoFundMe. And that's how Black Guns Matter came to be. We asked Maj how he thought private gun ownership would impact the interactions between police officers and the members of urban communities that Black Guns Matter works with. In response, he made it very clear that Black Guns Matter is not an organization that is in opposition to police officers. This isn't an argument of um, someone's employment means they don't deserve to make it back home to their family. Well, this also isn't, you know, an argument or an organization that's going to say because we're from urban areas in America that we don't deserve to have our basic rights met, you know. We're an organization that says if you're a law enforcement officer and we have a protocol and we're making those, you know, those those interactions, law enforcement, community, citizen interactions a lot better and smoother because everybody speaks the same language and at the same time, we are not making it taboo for an urban male, especially an African-American male, to have a firearm, then that changes that perception.
Maj talks about private gun ownership as one way to keep yourself and your community safe. But as Arwen mentioned, we as a country don't seem to have the same narrative around being able to exercise a right to safety by avoiding being in the presence of guns. We wanted to talk to someone who is thinking about safety from this perspective and came across an article written by Landon Schroeder for RVA Mag. Landon is a former security professional who worked in Africa and the Middle East on issues of explosive ordnance disposal. Landon also worked for Royal Dutch Shell as the head of corporate intelligence and assessment in Iraq, and his experiences in analyzing risk for both government agencies and corporate entities has informed his approach to the gun debate in this country. He now lives in Virginia, so it was natural that one of the first things that came up in our conversation was the Unite the Right rally that took place in Charlottesville, Virginia last summer, where multiple armed militias were present. What happened on the ground is that it was very hard to distinguish who was law enforcement, who was National Guard, who wasn't, because the people that were there protesting, and specifically the militias that were protecting them on the white supremacist, white nationalist side, all had the exact same kit that military would have, that law enforcement would have. Now, we can diverge at a certain point of semantics where, you know, military might have automatic weapons, but these guys have semi-automatic weapons. But, you know, they still have access to long drum magazines. They still have all the appropriate optics. They're still wearing body armor. They still have all the tactical accoutrements that go with it. When the Supreme Court found in Heller that the Second Amendment does confer an individual right of gun ownership, they did so in the context of a handgun in someone's home. The court left open the possibility that certain weapons in certain places used for certain purposes could fall outside the scope of the Second Amendment, but have yet to hear a case that would draw that line. However, some people argue that the Second Amendment does support private ownership of more powerful weapons, and in some states, local laws allow individuals to openly carry semi-automatic rifles. Landon spoke to us about how this maximalist interpretation of the Second Amendment and the presence of individuals armed with what he refers to as weapons of war threatens his individual right to safety and that of his community in Virginia. To be able to maintain an absolutist perspective on something that, you know, was written for a context hundreds of years ago, to me, doesn't necessarily hold a lot of weight in the current context in which we find ourselves. And until those two things can be reconciled, we're always going to be in this position. And once again, I think the counter argument to the Second Amendment absolutist argument is what is my right to live in safety? I mean, we're not we're not a we're not a group of frontiersmen anymore, are we? I'm just supposed to take with sheer certainty that somebody is not going to shoot me when they have a firearm present. Now, I mean, we're all betting people in America, you know, we're hedging our bets against that. And I think as the data and statistics bear out with the levels of mass shootings that we have in the U.S., that that's not a good hedge. That's not a good bet. I would not wager on that long term in terms of my own personal safety. As we mentioned, the Heller decision left open the possibility that the Second Amendment doesn't create an individual right of ownership for all types of guns. One way that our guests suggest reconciling competing interests in our collective and individual right to safety is to distinguish between handguns and more dangerous weapons, what Landon refers to as weapons of war, and what Dean refers to as assault weapons. When we were talking to Dean, he spoke about his experience with assault weapons when he was stationed in Baghdad and what makes those weapons different. 
While he doesn't go into detail, if you're interested in learning more, we did include an article on our website by Heather Scher, a radiologist who served Parkland victims. And we also recommend looking at Dean's Washington Post op-ed, which he mentions. There are very few uh, people um, other than uh, uh, individuals who have managed trauma in, uh, in war zones that have actually directly seen the, uh, the effects of assault weapons on human bodies. And I think I mentioned perhaps in that Washington Post article uh, that uh, uh, one of the saddest uh, parts of my duty when I served as a uh, hospital commander of our uh, small Air Force uh, hospital in Baghdad during the surge was being called to the morgue uh, on base almost every night uh, to pronounce death in uh, uh, our brave soldiers and Marines that died in combat that day. And again, uh, I won't describe the injuries to you, but they're horrific. And uh, I think certainly that, that has to shape uh, my uh, my opinion on the availability of assault weapons uh, to civilians. Another theme throughout our interviews that may provide a way to reconcile competing safety interests is the role of education. Maj spoke to us about the value of education for people who don't choose to own a gun. I'm not saying you should go buy a gun. You should learn about a firearm. I don't care if you don't want a gun. I don't care. Get this information and you make the decision for yourself from a better informed perspective as opposed to what you heard and misinformation. That's what our job and our organization does. Furthermore, he spoke about the utmost importance of education for those that do choose to own a gun. So you have to be very, very responsible with these rights, you know, because when it is time for you to defend yourself, you have every right to do that. You know, you also have to be responsible with those rights. So between safety, between being, you know, respecting other people's life, between conflict resolution, between de-escalation, stop. All of those things are very important. And if when you choose to carry that firearm on you, you are entrusted with those responsibilities, period, bar none. Lastly, Landon also pointed out the importance of knowledge about guns. He suggested that some proponents of gun control have done a disservice to their cause by failing to focus on differences between weapons, especially those that may serve our shared interest of safety far less than others. One of the inherent failures of the gun control debate on the progressive side is to not be able to make a kind of tactical distinction about the different kinds of firearms. Um, If you are a person that understands weapons and understands guns, you do understand that there are differences. So I do think that progressives have made a huge kind of sweeping argument, a general argument that has really pushed away a lot of sensible gun owners, because a lot of those weapons, to be fair, look real scary, but a lot of them fire the same kind of round that a normal hunting rifle would use. Um, So to be able to make that distinction, I think, would have allowed the gun control movement, the gun control conversation to find a lot more ground with moderate gun users who don't necessarily, or moderate gun owners, who don't necessarily think everybody should have access to these weapons without the most effective background checks or training. But as we know, you know, when everybody kind of gets lumped in together, you know, everybody retreats to their own side. One month after 17 people were shot and killed in their own high school in Parkland, Florida, it is yet to be seen whether people will ultimately retreat back to their own side or whether we will find some common ground on how to keep our country safe. As we have seen over and over again, the stakes are extremely high.
love to hear your thoughts on what safety means to you, how we should think about upholding our collective right to safety with or without guns, and how safety should play a role in the American social contract. As we do with every episode, we've included some sources on our website if you're interested in reading more about this issue or learning more about our guests. And please stay tuned for our next episode on March 28th, in which we'll explore the concept of health. As always, thanks to our producer, Mareva Lindo, and to Annie Swanson-Eystrom for our artwork. The music you heard on this podcast is Lullaby for Democracy and Go Tell It on the Molehill by Dr. Turtle. We hope you'll check us out at breachedpodcast.org, follow us on Twitter at Breached Podcast, and subscribe to Breached on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have feedback or ideas that you'd like to share with us, feel free to send us an email at breachedpodcast at gmail.com or leave us a message at 617-528-0708. And if you like what you've heard so far, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate the feedback that we've received so far. I'm Helena Swanson-Eystrom. And I'm Jyoti Josh Rosaria, and this is Breached. Mm-hmm.